The following resource is by CBC Mokopani. For more resources like this, check out our website at www.christbaptistmokopani.com. So welcome to our new series uh, in 1 John. I really trust it's going to be a wonderful and exciting time together just as we unpack God's Word and, and hopefully, because please when I say this, you need to be aware of this truth. We're not looking at new revelation, but this revelation may be new to us. Amen? So I'm excited about 1 John. There's a lot of practical lesson we need to take away from what God has said through this book and how He tells the church to conform to His Word and to His likeness and how we need to be loving one another. So the focus of the series is to look at the marks or the evidences of Christian assurance or the assurance of salvation. Right? I know many people have stressed that it is the tests of salvation. And I'm, I'm sure we could set it up in that sense. But I'm also more encouraged to look at the word when it assures me of my salvation. So I do trust that this would just be a time for us to collectively learn and grow in God's word. I want to use our time this morning to look at the surrounding context of 1 John, because that's important. Uh, We spoke about it somewhat on Friday, that, or was it on Wednesday? I might have said it on both days. But we like to come to God's Word and take verses that stand out, and we don't consider their context. And so we would come to the Bible perhaps in the mornings, like you know, you as as wonderful Christians do. And you might read a portion of Scripture, and there's one verse particularly that stands out. And that's the only verse you take away. But what about the surrounding context? Why is that verse important? How can that one verse help you love Christ on a given day? Well, look at the surrounding context. So that's what we're going to do this morning. I want us to look at who is John, what did he write, and what we can learn from this today. Amen? Now, something you might have picked up in the past that preachers that preach from this pulpit might have been referring to again and again. Throughout the various letters in the New Testament, we see false teachers being addressed. Have you seen that? Have you picked up on that? I mean, Peter does that, First John, or John does that, uh, James does that. False teachers are addressed again and again. And that was a big problem, despite the persecution these churches would endure, is they would still have false preachers coming into the church and confusing people. But one of the reasons many churches fell prey to these pretenders, to these wolves dressed in sheep's clothing, was they didn't have the New New Testament scriptures like we have them today. Why do you think that is? 
It was still being written. It was still being written. Alright? And that's why John writes. John writes to address these issues. John writes because he's writing scripture and the Lord is using him to do that. So John writes to set the record straight. To show us once again who is Christ and who we are in Christ. See, the reason John writes to these believers was to point them back to the basics of their faith in Christ. And if we can't get the basics right, how can we further study doctrines that expose lies? Nonetheless, I want to continue. John writes and he tells these, new belie- these believers, some new converts, some who have been in the church for years. John writes to them, telling them that just by looking at their actions, <clears throat> they can be aware of their salvation. For example, if they loved one another, that was evidence of God's presence in their lives. Because again, without the love of God, truly we cannot love one another. The contrast is, if they argued and fought all the time, or if they were selfish and they weren't looking out for one another, then they are portraying someone that does not know God. It would be the mark of assurance. Or, as some would put it, a test of your salvation. You know what's the other thing John does? And it's a big grace. John tells us that we don't need to be perfect. Because we can't be. We can't be. John recognized that believing in Christ also mean or means admitting our sins. Again and again, John says that we need to confess our sin. What does that tell you? That we're not perfect. So there's a lot for us to get excited about in this letter. But as we build up to these truths, as we go week by week, I want us to this morning just briefly look at who John is, what he wrote, and what we can learn. So firstly, who is John? Who is John? Can I clear the air? It is not John the Baptist. Why not? He was beheaded. Right? He was killed. Very early on in Jesus' ministry, John the Baptist was beheaded. Around 27-28 AD. This is John, also known as the Beloved Apostle. John, we studied him in Mark's Gospel. Briefly, John was part of the, we could call it, inner circle of Jesus. And why I would call it that is because whenever there were these special occasions in Christ's ministry, who were the three disciples that were there most often? John, Peter, James. Right. So in a sense, they were in the inner circle. It was John that was given the privilege of witnessing Christ's transfiguration. Very important. Why? Because at the transfiguration, 
Christ assures us that He is who He says He is. He's the Messiah. After the crucifixion and the ascension of Jesus, it's John who became a pillar in the Jerusalem church. And for a time, John also ministered with Peter in Asia. I mean, that's why he's writing this letter. He's actually writing this letter to the churches that were spread throughout Ephesus. And finally, John was exiled to the island of Patmos by the Romans. And it's here where John received the visions that are found in the book of Revelation. This is the John we're referring to. John, the brother of James, together Jesus called them Bornages. Why? Because they were known as the sons of thunder. Now, what's important about this, it described their personality. What kind of, who were they when they were together? They were sons of thunder. They were brothers who were characterized by zeal and passion and ambition for Christ. However, it wasn't scaled properly. You see, early in John's days with Jesus, there were times where John acted rather recklessly, impulsively, and even aggressively. Yes, this is the same guy who would later be known as the beloved apostle, or the apostle of love. Back in Mark chapter 9, we see John forbidding a man to cast out demons in Christ's name just because he wasn't part of the twelve. Mark chapter 9, verse 38 through 41. He said, no, 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 you can't do this. You're, who are you? You're not part of us. Yet Jesus gently rebukes him, just assuring him that, listen, no one will be able to cast out demons in his name and then be able to go around and speak evil of him. If someone was to do this in Christ's name, then they are of Christ. Furthermore, in Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 9, from verse 51 to 54, we see the brothers wanting to call down fire from heaven. That's pretty rough, right? For what reason? They wanted to destroy the Samaritans because the Samaritans refused to welcome Jesus. Oh, we'll let you have it. Fire come running down on you. That's pretty intense, man. But again, Jesus had to rebuke them for their intolerance and just their lack of genuine love for the lost. But that was John's passion. And in spite of these youthful expressions of misdirected passion, John aged well. He began to understand the need for humility. And where we find one of the unique moments or turning points for John is in his own gospel. Because John is the only one who records Jesus washing the disciples' feet. And I believe the reason for this is because it impacted him so greatly that Christ would stoop down and wash everyone's feet. I believe that was the turning point for John. From that day on, he changed. He became 
a servant. And by the time of Christ's crucifixion, Jesus had so much confidence in young John that he did what some would think is the unthinkable. He entrusted the care of his mother to John. Amazing. Shows us John became someone who was willing to serve. He was willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel. That's how Christ changed him. That's how Christ impacted him. So the question I have for us, just looking at John, who he is and the kind of life he lived, is what can we learn from this? What can we learn from the man God chose to write this letter, to record these words for us, to record words that, that call us to change, that encourage us of God's goodness and His love, that give us assurance of His work in our hearts. I think the first thing we can learn from John's life is that our passion for the truth must always be balanced by a love for people. Right? We can't just be zealous about the truth and, and not love the people around us. Without, without a love for God's people or for people, the, the passion for truth can become harsh. It can become judgment. So John teaches us that, that we need to be sincere to those around us. That if we speak the truth in love to those around us, then as Ephesians 4.15 says, we will grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ. That's how we can grow in Christ. Is that we speak the truth in love. That we live out the truth in love. Another thing we can learn from John's life is this. Confidence and boldness that isn't changed by compassion and grace will turn into pride and arrogance. So there's a clear line, right? You can come in through those doors and be proud and bold. But without humility, it's arrogance. It's not godlike. Right? It's, it's unloving. Listen, confidence is a wonderful virtue. And I think, you know, some of us can pray for more confidence. But without humility, it'll become self-confidence. And it'll lead to boasting. It'll lead to an attitude of superiority. And once that happens, listen, my dear friends, I say this because I want us all to be informed. Once these things happen, our witness of the grace of God is spoiled. And we will misrepresent Christ. So it's very important that we learn these things from John's life. So that we, like John, if we are to be effective in our witness for Christ, would reflect a loving passion for the truth. And that we serve those around us. 
in that we're patient, in that we're humble, in that we're meek, in that we are doing the very thing that changed John's life. Washing each other's feet, right? Serving one another. Doing that which, that kind of service we don't usually want to do ourselves for ourselves. Humility. Humility. So my question then is, can we grow in these virtues apart from God's word? Absolutely not. We can't do that. We do this through studying God's word. We grow in our knowledge through God's word. And that brings us to point number two this morning, what John wrote. What he wrote for us, what he wrote for the church. And in doing so, I just want to reflect on 1 John chapter 2, verse 12 to 14. I know this is the first time we're reading a passage. Like, wow, preached so long, we haven't even read a passage yet. 1 John chapter 2, verse 12 to 14. He writes this, he says, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for His namesake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know Him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know Him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the Word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. So John writes with purpose. John writes with intent. And apart from encouraging the Christian church, John also wrote to believers, wrote to believers who were facing false teachers. These false teachers came in the form of Gnostics. Ever heard that word before? A Gnostic. The word Gnosticism comes from the Greek word Gnosis or Gnosis, which means knowledge. And this was a great issue that, that John had to deal with, that Christians were overwhelmed by. Because the problem is, there wasn't just one kind of Gnostic. There were various kinds of Gnostics. How do you pinpoint the, the differences between these guys and what they believe and how to refute them? One thing we learn in John's Gospel is John highlights the truth. And the truth automatically refutes the error. Are you with me? It's like, I think I can interject an example here. If you work in the bank, as a bank teller, and you work with money, are they going to bring you every other kind of false kind of money? Or are they going to bring you a true note to study so that when a note comes through your hands, it doesn't feel like, look like, smell like the real deal. You'll be able to tell. It's the latter, right? 
You study the truth. And in knowing the truth, you are able to spot error. Because imagine we had to take the time to study every false religion, every detail of every false religion. I want to say good luck, because we've done that. It's pretty rough. But when you know the truth, you don't need to know the error. Because the, the truth will automatically expose the error. If you have the opportunity to study those things, please go and do it. I'm not saying don't do that. I'm saying focus rather on that which is true. So anyway, back to our text. Generally speaking, Gnosticism taught that salvation is achieved through special knowledge. Hence the word genosis, knowledge. It's a special knowledge that brings salvation. This knowledge usually dealt with the individual's relationship to the superior being. There's no way of telling how you receive this knowledge, but once you receive this knowledge, you will know. Pretty funny, isn't it? Now, more detailed Gnostic theology is as follows. The unknowable God, right, was too far and too pure and too perfect to have anything to do with a material universe, which was considered evil anyway. Are you guys following? It's important because John makes references to these things. And if you don't know what he's refuting, you're going to miss it. Now what happened, or the belief is this, because God is so far away, so perfect, so pure, He generated lesser gods. And one of these lesser gods, known as wisdom, desired to know the unknowable God. And out of this wrong desire, the Demiurge, which is an evil god, was formed. And this evil god um, created the universe. It's quite a lot to track, right? Told you. So this evil god creates the universe, and he and his rulers keep the mortal beings in bondage by keeping them in material matter. And then they tried to prevent the pure souls from getting or ascending back to God after the death of their physical body. Pretty crazy, right? But that's what they came into the church and started teaching. That you need to be saved by a special knowledge so that you can be delivered from the evil matter, the evil physical. Now, since according to the Gnostics, matter is evil, Deliverance from the material form was only possible through this special knowledge. And only this special knowledge could be revealed by Gnostic teachings. Isn't that funny? Always turns out to be like that. Only the leaders could bring you this special knowledge. So you had to give them the pulpit if they came into church. You had to let them tell these things. You had to let them preach these things. Because they are the leaders. Anyway, I want to continue. They also believed that Christ 
was the divine redeemer who descended from the spiritual realm to reveal this necessary knowledge for redemption, right? So they believe Christ is a redeemer, but listen to their central teaching. They taught that spirit is good and matter is evil. And from this unbiblical heresy, we have the following important errors. Number one, the human body, which is matter, is evil. And it has to be contrasted with God, who is entirely spirit and therefore good. Number two, salvation is the escape from the body, achieved not by faith in Christ, but by special knowledge. Number three. Christ's true humanity was de denied in two ways. Number one. Some said that Christ only seemed to have a body. So what they would teach is he wasn't in a physical form, right? He was spirit being. He looked physical, but he was spirit being. So when he went to the cross, he didn't really die and suffer because he's spirit. Is that true? No, it's heresy. It's false. But there was a second way. Others said that the divine Christ joined the man Jesus at his baptism and left him just before he died. So again, when the person Jesus was baptized, the spirit of Christ descended into the person Jesus but when the person Jesus was being nailed to the cross, the Spirit, being Christ, left him. Is that true? No. Fourthly, um, since the body was considered evil, it had to be treated harshly. So you had to injure yourself. You had to cause yourself discomfort. And finally, the Gnostics believed that their doctrine led to immortality. Why? Because matter is considered evil. And breaking God's law has no moral consequence because matter is evil anyway. So you can physically do what you want. As long as it doesn't affect the spirit. Five important heresies that these guys taught. And this is what John had to deal with. And John does deal with those. In fact, when we, as we track through the series, when John addresses each of these heresies, I will highlight them for you. And you could just recall what they were. Now, therefore, John writes this letter to the churches in Ephesus who are being affected by these teachings. And John writes to point out the truth about salvation. The truth about Christian assurance. Furthermore, in the midst of this darkness of paganism and superstition, John writes so that the church would remain a beacon of hope. John writes so that the church could continue proclaiming the truth. 
but it was causing oppression. It was causing such a pressure in the churches in Asia that they began to split. It was good. It was good because in most cases, the false teachers and their followers would leave. But it's sad. It's sad in the sense that you would know many of these people. You would have had many of these people in your homes. You would have been ministering to many of these people. And then you see them leave. And it hurts. But what does John tell them? Be comforted. They weren't really of us. That's why they left. So there's a lot of grace in this as well. Therefore, John decided to take his pen and defend the faith. In fact, John wrote, according to chapter 1, verse 4, that your joy may be complete. John believed that the truth would lead us to joy. Because there we know the reality of Christ and His work. In fact, this is what John learned from himself, from the Lord. In John 15, verse 11, uh, this is what Jesus said in the upper room at, at the Last Supper. He said, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. What were these things? Christ was speaking the truth. Secondly, John writes, according to chapter 2, verse 1, that you may not sin. Say it again, John writes that you may not sin. Again, John even heard the Lord say, go and sin no more. And this is how he was affected. And this is how he was changed by Christ himself. And now John wanted true believers to experience this as well. Finally, John writes, according to chapter 5, verse 13, he writes these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know that you have eternal life. And that is a grace. Do you know what an assurance it is to go to a believer and just remind them of their security in Christ? Wow, it's comforting. And that's why John penned these words. So that we as true believers would experience, number one, joy. That we would experience holiness. And thirdly, that we would experience assurance. So what can we learn today? I know we've, it's not what you're used to. We aren't taking verses and studying their meaning. We're not looking at the lesson that they present. We're looking at the whole thing collectively. What you can learn today is firstly in 1 John chapter 1. John says this, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father 
and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things that our joy may be complete. This sounds exactly like John's opening in the Gospel, doesn't it? What is John doing? John is pointing out the divinity and the humanity of Christ. What did the Gnostics do? They denied both. They denied that Christ was both man and both God. Yet John assures us that Jesus Christ, being fully divine, yet fully human, is at the center of the scriptures and is at the center of our salvation. Scripture points us to Christ. It points us to His work. It points us to His redemption. It points us to His love. That's what John wants you to know. That's what the Lord wants you to know. Friends, that's what I want you to know. Furthermore, what else can we learn? We can learn this today. That we need to examine our hearts correctly. We need to examine our hearts correctly. One of John's main goals in writing this, this epistle was twofold. Number one, to assure true believers that they have eternal life. But also number two, to search out those who have a false assurance so that they may realize they aren't truly saved. Again, that's another grace. If someone thinks they're going to heaven because of good works or because their parents used to go to church, that's a false assurance. John writes so that we would know the truth, so that we could share the truth, so that people can enjoy the truth. I want to say that regular churchgoers need to be challenged concerning our profession of faith. Because we can so often just take it for granted. And so just this challenge keeps our eyes on the Lord. It's the Lord who draws us. It's the, it's the Lord who changes us. It's the Lord who holds us. And isn't that just such a sweet reminder for us? Friends, we can also learn a great deal from one of John's verses that stand out the most. John says the following. In chapter 2, verse 15. Do not love the world... Or the things in the world. For anyone, <clears throat> if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For that is all in the world. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. This is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. John points out the cost 
and the source of worldliness. What's the cost of worldliness? Damnation. What's the source of worldliness? Your heart. Your heart, your desires. What your eyes long for, what your flesh longs for, what your heart longs for. It's for the world. So John says, look, this is the cost and the source of worldliness. Yet John also tells us that those who do the will of God will abide forever. So what does that mean? It means dying to self. It means laying down your own life. And what did Jesus tell us in Mark's gospel? Those who keep their life, what? Lose it, right? And those who, what? Lose their life? Gain it. Friends, that is a challenge. So finally, John teaches us that it matters what you believe about Christ. It matters. It matters because God's true children are protected by the indwelling, indwelling work of the Holy Spirit. If His Spirit isn't always in our heart, working in us, changing us, convicting us, where would we be? However, Paul tells us in Romans 5 that God's love for us is already perfect and as proof of that perfect love he has given us his spirit what a comfort what a joy just the assurance of salvation so my question is does this want you does this leave you wanting to come back for more i hope so <laughs> i really hope so and so i want to just leave you this morning with the thought, we need to know the truth from error. Amen? And we can always do with more assurance. Please, if you think, oh, but I know the truth, you could do with more assurance. I could do with more assurance. And that's what First John teaches us. Our assurance of Christ and His work in us. So I leave you with this passage in First John 5, verse 10 through 12. Or just at least verse 12. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I think in application, I want us to sing a hymn called All I Have is Christ. Because that's the reality. If all we have is Christ, we have everything. We have life in abundance. We have life eternal you think the life that you've lived now is long maybe you think the life you live now is somewhat short friends let me tell you something in comparison to the glory that awaits us this is about a micro speckle paul tells us it's fleeting it's passing and it's it's going by quickly and because it is going by so quickly, we need to know the truth 
we need to share the truth. And we need to love the truth. Let me pray for us and then we'll sing together. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you've given us your word and that your word enlightens us, that your word calls us and draws us to the truth, that the truth sets us free and that we can know this freedom in you. I pray that as we reflect just on our sinful ways, how we fall short, how perhaps even as we go from this place, we might be entrapped in the very thing we repented of before communion. Still your grace is sufficient. And I know that your spirit is working in our hearts to conform us into the likeness of Jesus Christ. So Lord, we thank you and pray that you would unite us as a church through this series to cling to that which is good. We ask it in your name and in your name alone. Amen.